Don't you love worshiping the Lord? And I love worshiping the Lord uh, with you. By, by the way, don't you love John? John? John's in the back there. He, he wasn't even winded. He was not even winded. By, by the way, that wasn't a prank because Caleb's first time up here. It was a dead battery. You know, it was a, it was a real thing. It wasn't, you know, but, but thank you guys so much. We really appreciate you guys uh, so much for taking the time to lead us in worship. Now, the last two weeks, we finished two books in the Bible. Wow. It's like, you know, the, these minor books are just boom, 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 boom. We're in the book of Micah. We're already halfway through the minor prophets. There's 12 of these, uh, you know, small books in the Bible, but every single one of them packs a powerful uh, punch, right? Uh, whenever I do the book of Micah, in fact, the second sermon I gave in this church was in Micah. It was right over there against that, that wall on that side. Uh, the first sermon was on Hosea, and the second one was on the book of Micah. And Micah holds a, a, um, a very special place in my heart. One of my favorite verses comes from the book of, of Micah. And whenever I go through the book of Micah, I always start with the last three verses of the book of Micah. In fact, the last three verses are in chapter 7, uh, verses 18 uh, through 20. Yeah, follow along with me as we read these amazing verses. Who is a God like you, who forgives iniquity, who passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance, who does not hold fast to his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness, he will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities, and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and loving kindness to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. And so, Father, as we approach this magnificent seven-chapter book, this, this small book in comparison with many other books in the Bible, help us to see that there is no one like you, that you are unique. There, there is God and everything else. There, there is you and, and everything else, all creation. You are alone, not created. You alone are eternal past and, and future. You, you alone are, are holy, holy, holy. You are lo alone are, are omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent, Lord. Uh, only you are who you are. There is no one like our God. And so, Father, as we approach this amazing book of Micah, I ask that you just massage it into our heart. You would speak to us clearly tonight. Maybe for the first time, having maybe never even read this book or even opened to this part of our, our Bibles, Lord, and, and just to be able to see the magnificence of your word and be able to maybe even be uh, intrigued and, and want to read more parts of the Bible or, or more of the Bible, Lord. Give us that excitement, that enthusiasm for, for your word that we all need, Lord. Lord, I thank you for these, my family, my friends that are gathered in this room that are watching online. And I thank you so much for all those kids that came to Vacation Bible Camp this week. Lord, bless them, help them to enjoy this, their, their last night. Lord, help them just to uh, remember those verses and uh, um, 
even apply them to their, their lives, Lord. I thank you so much for the many, many volunteers and teachers that are over there that are, I mean, just the amazing talent that we have in this church to be able to minister to our, the kids that we have, Lord. And I ask that you just help them to remember this time, Lord. Lord, we love you for who you are. We thank you that you are here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, Micah was written in one of these tumultuous times in the, in the history of Israel. We, we've been going through the minor prophets. We started with the book of Hosea and then Joel and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah. And the first part of these minor prophets, they were written to what was called the northern kingdom of Israel. At this time, there's a, a divided kingdom. There's a northern kingdom. There's a, a southern kingdom. Sometimes they fought each other. Sometimes they were allies. Uh, sometimes they, you know, they, they, they were you know, uh, cordial to one another, and then other times they hated each other. And despite the fact that they were all 12 tribes, all descended from uh, the line of Abraham, Israelite. But during this time, there's a, a king that's on the throne that is horrific. He's reigning in Jerusalem. His name is King Ahaz. We learn this in the first chapter, first verse of the book of Micah. It says, the word of Yahweh, which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We get the time period. Kings of Judah, which he beheld concerning Samaria and uh, Jerusalem. And we were in the book of uh, Hosea and also in the book of Amos. We learned that the capital city in the north was Samaria and the capital city in the south was Jerusalem, okay? So we have both of these capitals. So Micah is one of those unique prophets that actually ministered to not only the southern kingdom or, or not only to the, to the northern kingdom, but to both kingdoms. He's actually writing this to both capitals in a divided kingdom, Samaria and uh, uh, Jerusalem. During this time, there was a king by the name of Ahaz. He was oppressive, he was tyrannical, he was horrible, and he was heinous. One of the worst kings, probably the second worst king in all of uh, Judah's history. Descended from David, by the way. In fact, we learn about his reign in Second Chronicles chapter 28. You can read the whole chapter, but we're going to only read the first four and the last four verses of this chapter. It says in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. He reigned 16 years, you guys can do the math, in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of Yahweh as David his father had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He also made molten images for the Baals, Moreover, he offered offerings and smoke in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and burned his sons in the fire. Not, not only was he a bad king, but he was a bad four days from now. Do you think he got a Father's Day present? Uh, probably not. Yeah. Which, which son am I going to, you know, burn on the fire this week? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, how horrible do you have to be? Where, where literally he's trying to gain favor from a, uh, an idol, an uh, inanimate object by burning his live children uh, on these altars. Hor horrible, horrific. 
By the way, he's copying the northern kings. These were the 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 Ashtras, the, these were the the Moloks, which were these these violent gods that demanded these, you know, blood sacrifices, not of an animal, but of a human being. Just horrible. By the way, this is the king in Jerusalem during the time when Micah is a prophet. It gets worse, by the way. According to the abominations of the nations whom Yahweh had disposed or dispossessed from before the sons of Israel, he also sacrificed and offered offerings and smoke on high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Skipping ahead to verse 22 there. Now in the time of his distress, this same king Ahaz became yet more unfaithful to Yahweh. He, he, he's now gone and, and several things have happened in the history of, of Jerusalem at this time. They, they've had you know, a certain other nations that have come in and they've actually had to you know, cut apart certain parts of the gold items in the temple in order to pay as, as this tribute to other nations. And, and rather than turning to God, he becomes even more unfaithful. By the way, how can you become even more unfaithful than putting your kids in the fire? Look at what it says, verse 23. Indeed, he sacrificed the gods Damascus, which had struck him and said, because the gods, the kings of Aram helped them, my enemies, I, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. Right? I got conquered by them, so I might as well join them. Might as well worship them. Instead, they became a stumbling block to him and all Israel. Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God. Then he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces. And he closed the doors of the house of Yahweh. And made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. What happened to the doors of that amazing temple that King Solomon built? Closed. Church closed. Temple closed. You kind of experienced that a little while ago. Do you understand why that's worse than putting your children in the fire? This is considered worse than sacrificing his own children. Who is the what who is detrimentally affected? when the doors of the church are closed, when the doors of the temple are closed, the people. No more place for them to go and worship. Now in each and every city of Judah, he made high places to offer offerings and smoke to other gods and provoked Yahweh, the God of his fathers, to anger. This is Ahaz. This is the king that's in charge during the time that Micah is doing his prophecy. He's not the only one. We'll find out about the rest of them later on in the book. I always love looking at the history. By, by the way, it's going to get amazing, okay? You have to come back next week, okay? Because the doors aren't going to stay closed. Thank God. And it's going to be due to Micah and his contemporary, Isaiah, who's going to be also a prophet during this time. Micah's name means, who is like our God? In fact, this phrase, who is like our God, is going to be repeated throughout this chapter. In fact, we read it in verse 18 of chapter 7. Who is a God like ours? Every single time you see the name Micah, and he's saying this phrase, his name defined. 
who is like our God. There is only one God who is like our God. He is unique, and there is no one else beside him. The only one who is not created. This term transcendent comes into play. He is high and lifted up. He is holy, holy, holy. He is omnipotent which means that he's all-powerful. He is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere, all at once. He is omniscient, which means that he, he knows everything, and you cannot make him not know any more or less. But there's some other terms that we're going to see also, maybe more less familiar theological terms about who God is. And Micah brings these things out in verse 2. Of chapter 1 of Micah, we're in a courtroom scene. God is witness. Look at what it says there in verse 2. Hear, O peoples, all of you give heed, O earth, as well as its fullness, and let Lord Yahweh be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. How would you like to have God on the jury? God is the witness. Right. And yes, thank God that, you know, when we're, you know, his children, he's on our side. He witnesses for our good. But in the case of Ahaz and the people of Israel during this time, the witness is wrong. The witness is not wanting them to have to not only the judgment that is coming, but also the closing of the doors of the temple. The, the judgment is coming severely. Verse 3, For behold, Yahweh is going forth from his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him. The valleys will be split like wax before the fire like water poured down a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is a transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is a high place of Judah? Is it not uh, Jerusalem? Remember what Ahaz has done. He's closed the doors of the temple. And where are the people worshiping? On the high places. On the hills, on the trees, on, on all the things that, you know, they just worship in nature. They're, they're worshiping creation. They're worshiping these idols that they themselves had made. Do you understand when I worship anything else other than God, it is always a created thing. It's always a created thing. Whether it's a little stone image or, or whether it's a, you know, a, a flat screen TV on the wall or whether it's a phone or whatever it is, whatever I put before God, it is always created. There has to be a maker for it. Whether it's a tree, or whether it's a, you know, a, a mountain as we see here, or, or whether it's a high place, or whether it's a stone or gold or silver or idol, whatever it is, whether it's money, whether it's pleasure, whether it's you know, a boat or a car or, or something that I put my interest in, anything that I put before God is always created. It's always lesser. Because there's only one who was never created. There's always only one who never had a beginning, and that's God. God God's the only one. Who, who is like our God? 
no one. By the way, the privilege that we're going to get to see is his uniqueness, who he is in his very being. God is transcendent, high above our way. We can never attain him in terms of who he is. I can never become a God myself. Unlike what other certain, you know, uh, cults say or religions say, I can never become a God, okay? Why? By definition, I'm not holy and I, I already have a beginning, okay? I already, you know, I'm not omnipotent. I, I'm not omniscient. I, I, I'm not, you know, omnipresent, definitely. I, I am not a God. None of us here are gods, right? There's only one who is God by definition. Look at, look at what it says there in verses 6 and 7. So I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, planting places for a vineyard. I will pour her stones down into the valley and lay, will lay bare her foundations. Wherever you heard that word Samaria before? Not, not just in the Old Testament as the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, but you've heard about Samaria in the New Testament. Who, who were the people that came from Samaria? They were called? Samaritans. Isn't that amazing? In fact, the, these people, these same people that are going to be, you know, uh, not only dispersed by the Assyrians, but also uh, conquered by the Assyrians in 722 uh, BC, they're going to come back as half-breeds. They're going to come back as Samaritans. This is the same person that was at the well when Jesus came to Samaria, a city in Samaria and that woman came to him and Jesus said uh, if you wanted water you would ask of me I am the living water or in verse 7 and all her graven images will be smashed and all her earnings will be burned with fire and all her idols I will make desolate and she, for she collected them from a harlot's earning, and to the earnings of a harlot they will return. We talked about, a lot about this when we were in the book of Hosea. God or Hosea compares uh, this idolatry with adultery, this comparison. This courtroom scene, who is the witness? It's God. And does God see everything? Gary, by the way. Verse 8, because of this, I must lament and wail. I must go barefoot and naked. I, I must make a lament like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. And for her wound is incurable, for it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people, even to uh, Jerusalem. Verses 10 through 15, it, it lists all these cities. And then, you know, whenever the, there's lists of cities in the Bible, sometimes we can get easily confused, right? You know, especially if, you know, even if you've been there, I mean, you know, city names change and, and places change and, and because of wars and, and things that just take place over, you know, a 2,700-year period, uh, you know, names change and all, all these things that go on in a, in a place, especially a place like, like Israel. So these names that are listed here, each one has a definition, and the definition is listed either before the name or after the name. Every single one of these uh, city names that are going to be listed in these next five verses, 
Every single one of them is defined in the previous phrase or in the after phrase. This definition is either going to be said in, in sarcasm in terms of contrast or as a reproof against the people of Israel. It would be like, you know, someone coming from New York and, and you trying to describe Kern County to them. You know, if you go up the hill, it's Tatchby, you know, on the way there, you're going to pass Arvin, you know, Kern City. You have all these other places like Taft and, you know, uh, Green Acres and, and all these other cities, right? And a person that's not from here, do they know those places? It's foreign to them, right? The same thing when we read the Bible and there's city names. These city names, though, are used as a reference point to the people that are receiving it as an emphasis to the definition. In fact, it says it right there in verse 10 and 11. We'll, we'll read these. It says, tell it not in Gath. Gath is, uh, you know, remember Goliath? He's from Gath. He, it was the Philistine city. Uh, weep not at all in, in Bethlehem, roll yourself in the dust. Bethlehem means house of dust. So when he's saying roll around in the dust, using the very definition of the name of the city, house of dust. You, you see the picture just by the name of the city. Same thing in verse 11, pass on by inhabitant of Shafir in shameful nakedness. The inhabitants of Zanon does not go out. The lamentation of Beth Azel, he will take from you its support. Every single one of those definitions being defined in the phrase after it. Zanon literally means to go out. Uh, Shafir means in, in shame or nakedness. Uh, Beth Azel means house of support. God's going to take away their support. Judgment is coming not to just to the capital city, but to every single one of the cities as well. Verse 12, for the inhabitant of Maroth, which means bitterness, writhes in waiting for good because a calamity has come down from Yahweh to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the chariot to the team of horses, in, O inhabitant of Lachish. Lachish means invincible, and of course, at that time, chariots would have been the tanks of the day. They, they were a, you know, a military a power that would have been used to devastate other infantry. She was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion because in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you will give parting gifts on behalf of Moresheth Gath. Moresheth Gath means possession of Gath. It's along what we call uh, today the you know the Philistia or the the Philistine area. Uh, which is on the would be on the the western side uh, of Israel. There, the houses of Achzib will become a deception to the kings of Israel. Achzib means deception by its very definition. Moreover, I will bring on you the one who takes possession, O inhabitant of Merashah, to the glory of Israel. We will enter Adullam. Merashah means take possession, and Adullam means justice. Of the people. Is justice coming? 
And if God's the witness against the people of Israel, what's going to happen with justice? Is real punishment coming? Oh, yeah. In fact, this is going to be the last of the minor prophets written to the northern kingdom of Israel. Because after this time, after King Hezekiah comes on the throne, not only will they be attacked multiple times by the king of Assyria, but they will be overthrown by the king of Assyria. This is the last of the minor prophets that addresses the northern kingdom of Israel. All the rest of the prophets after this are either going to address Judah or the post-exilic tribes when they come back after Babylon. So this is the last of the minor prophets that are talking to Israel, warning them, come back to God. Because God is the witness against you, not for you. Verse 16, make yourself bald and cut off your hair. As the children of your delight, extend your baldness like the eagle, for they will go from you into exile. But, by the way, what was the king doing to his children? What was the king doing to his children? And, and this shaving of the head, cutting off the hair, was a sign of, of shame, a sign of mourning. This is what you should be doing because you have killed your children. Judgment is coming. By the way, there's nothing new under the sun. Right? God judged Israel so severely, you know. Is he warning us today? It's like a mirror, right? Even more relevant than today's, you know, newspaper, right? The word of God is timeless. Can we see our own na nation in this? I'm grateful for what the pastor has been teaching as he's been going through this series on Babylon, on uh, through the book of of Daniel, and and he's been bringing these topical, you know, messages in terms of all these things that are that are going on in our society today. Our eyes need to be opened. Micah is, you know, preaching, prophesying to the people of Israel, and he's saying, "Open your eyes." so easy to be blind to our own sins when we see the sins of, of other people or other nations. They're right before us. Chapter 2, verse 1, it continues on. Woe to those who divide wickedness, who work out evil on their beds. When the light of the morning comes, they do it, for it is in the power of their hands. They, they dream and they connive in their beds. They, they, they figure out these ways to, you know, during the day, you know, do evil. Have you ever, you know, no one in this room would ever do this. Okay, I know this. But, but have you ever, you know, you know, thought something, I'm going to get in that person. I, I know how to do it. And then you plan it during the middle of the night. It keeps you awake maybe even. And then you try to do it the next day and you know, hopefully, you know, it doesn't come about. Or we, we, you know, try to cause the downfall of someone else that we don't like. This is what Micah is saying here. Look at what they're doing. They're, they're, they're planning this out in the night. They're, they're taking the time not only to not sleep, but to miss their sleep in order to devise ways to take advantage of their fellow countrymen. 
For they covet fields and they tear them away, and houses and, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. What are they trying to do? Cheat people out of their houses or, or their possessions, right? They're devising ways to do this. Envy, covetousness, that, that last of the Ten Commandments, by the way. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, behold, I'm devising against this family an evil demise uh, from which you cannot remove your necks and, and you will not walk haughtily for it will be an evil time. And on that day, they will take up against you a taunt and utter a bitter wailing and say, we are completely devastated. He exchanges the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to the faithful one, or excuse me, to the faithless one, he apportions our fields. God is the witness. God is seeing this. God sees them stealing from their neighbor. So what is God going to do to their land? He's going to give it to someone that's faithless. He's going to give it to another nation. He's going to give it to the Assyrians. And the Assyrians at this time, they were one of the worst nations on the planet. In fact, the previous book that we read, uh, Jonah, that, that's where the Assyrians came from. The, the Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. God uses them. By the way, remember what happened to those people when we were in the book of Jonah. What, what did the Ninevites do? All 120,000 of them. What did they do? They repented. Right? when Israel is not repenting. So God's going to use these people to take their land because they've been taking each other's land. Therefore, you will have no one, or no one stretching a measuring line for you by lot in the assembly of Yahweh. Judgment is now declared by God. God is coming with judgment. Verse 6, do not speak, dripping out words, they say, while dripping out words. But they, but if they do not drip out words concerning these things, dishonor will not be turned back. It is being said, O house of Jacob, to this, is the spirit of Yahweh impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to the one walking uprightly? What are they trying to do? with the God who is high and lifted up, who is like our God. What are they trying to do? They're trying to bring God to their own level. They're trying to define God in human terms. Well, God just being impatient with us. Or, or, or God just, you know, acting out against us. No, that's not what's happening. In fact, they're trying to bring God to their level, and they're trying to make God like a man. What happens when I, when I try to define who God is? And we, we've all seen it before. We, we've seen drawings of what people think God looks like. That, you know, that, that guy in the sky with the big white beard and the, you know, the flowing white hair and, and the robe, you know, and that glow or whatever. We try to define God in human terms. There's no way our finite mind 
can understand the infinite. That there's no way our our human uh, limited understanding can fully comprehend a, a transcendent, amazing God, awesome God. Now, thank God we have the scriptures, right? And we get, you know, glimpses of who God is. But can I ever fully understand God? No. But does God come down to our love? Yes. I can't bring him down, but does God himself come down to us? In fact, one of the most amazing verses from every single time you read the New Testament at Christmas time comes from the book of Micah. The place where Emmanuel is born. The very city, the very city where Jesus Christ is going to be born in a manger defined, prophesied in the book of Micah. In fact, you, you may not even know, you know, where it's at. We always, you know, describe it in terms of, you know, this, this amazing Christmas story, and we read it every single year, and, and we, we read this Old Testament passage and having no idea where it's at. It comes from the book of Micah. In fact, we'll get to it hopefully tonight in chapter 5. God is transcendent. We can never define him in human terms. God is high and lifted up. He, he is unique and alone. And yet at the same time, despite the fact he is transcendent, he is also imminent or intimate with us. And aren't you glad? Because if God would just transcendent, aloof, high above us and never came down, what would it be like? It would be very, very impersonal. But God, the one that we serve, actually came to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, became like a, what? Man. The very image of man came down to the earth, became a baby in a manger. The Messiah, the anointed one. He is transcendent, yet he is imminent or intimate at the same exact time. By the way, only God can do that. Only God can do that. And it's not of a human invention. It's what the Bible tells us. Verse 8 there in chapter 2, it says, And recently my people have arisen as an enemy. You stripped the robe off the garment from unsuspecting passerbys, from those returned from war. The women of my people you drive out, each one from her pleasant house. From her infants you take my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place of rest. Because of the uncleanness that wrecks destruction, a painful destruction, not only are they taking people's houses, taking people's lands, taking people's inheritances, but what are they doing with the widows of the people that fought in the army? What are they doing with them? Kicking them out of their own houses. Horrible. Just horrific. Now, treating their neighbors as if they were less than. Stripping the robes off of them, taking advantage of people. In fact, that's exactly what it says in verse 11. If a man walking after wind, lying, had acted falsely and said, I will speak, dripping out words to you concerning wine and liquor, 
He would be one who drips out words as a spokesman to this people. These were the false prophets. Bribing the people with what? Liquor and wine. You go to the house of God and what do you get? Drunk. In fact, causing them to sin. Why? Why, why would a priest or a prophet do that to the, to the people? Why would they do that? It's a bribe, as it says here, but it's also this dripping that comes from their mouth, causing the people of God to go away, to fall away into sin, to fall away into oh, their own addiction. Verses 12 and 13, I will surely assemble all of you, Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like a sheep in the fold. Like a flock in the midst of its pastures, it will be noisy with men. Breaker goes up before them. They break out, pass through the gate, and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and Yahweh at their head. There is only one who is the good shepherd. Only one. You're probably the most famous of all the Psalms. You probably... You know, even if you've never read the Bible before, you've probably heard Psalms 23 before, whether it's at a, a funeral or, or some, you know, uh, uh, thing. You know, the Lord is my what? And you can repeat it. I shall not. Yeah, you guys know it already, right? It's amazing. Psalm 23. He, he's the one who, who takes them to green pastures, right? To, to living water. He, he's the one that protects the sheep. He's the one that leads them to food and water and clean things. The good shepherd always puts the sheep before his own needs and wants. That's what a, that's what a good shepherd does. But are the people of Israel being good shepherds? No. In fact, in John chapter 10, uh, Jesus describes this and he defines himself as, I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Wow. That's a turn of event. Not, not, fleecing the flock, but actually laying his own life down for the sheep. In fact, a good shepherd, when they were, you know, making sure that nothing would happen to their sheep at night, normally they would have a, a small enclosure or a place where the, the sheep could be kept, you know, normally on, on uh, uh, you know, most of the sides covered, but then there'd be like an opening and the, sh the shepherd would always lay his own body in front of that opening as he slept at night. So if a you know, wolf or an animal wanted to hurt the sheep, where would they have to go through? The shepherd laying down his life for a sheep. Going and finding the lost sheep. Taking the time to go after the sheep. In fact, it continues on there. And, or John chapter 10, verse 12, he says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, right? What, what happens to those that are just, you know, there for the money? What do they do when danger comes? 
They run. Why? Who are they thinking of? Yeah, not the sheep. Not the flock. The wolf snatches and scatters them because he is a hired hand and not concerned about the sheep. In fact, in the first Peter chapter two, verse 23, this similar thing is compared not just to Jesus, but also to the leadership of the church. In fact, the, the word pastor in the Greek, the word pastor that we have in the Bible in first Peter and also in, in Timothy and Titus as well, uh, throughout the, the New Testament is the word shepherd. The one, the one that protects the flock. Feed the flock. In fact, if you come in July, we'll be going through the book of First Peter. First Peter chapter 2, verse 25, it says, For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. Not, not just physical food, but what? Spiritual food. Where, where do you go to for spiritual protection and food? To God, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Micah chapter 3, it continues on. And I said, hear now heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil who tear off their skin from them and their flesh from their bones and who eat the flesh of my people, strip off their skin from them. This is horrific, by the way. You would never think this was in the Bible. What are the shepherds, the ones who are the leaders of Israel, doing to the flock, their own people? They're fleecing the flock. They're cannibalizing the flock. They're putting their own needs before the sheep. They're abusing the flock. They're abusing the sheep. And by the way, the, the, it's very, very graphic, right? Can, can you imagine a, a shepherd abusing his sheep? In fact, you see the shepherds out here many, many times along the, the 99 or even up in Tatchby or various places in the more rural areas. What do they do? They, they, they bring the water to the sheep. They, they take the sheep to areas where there is uh, grass and food, right? They make sure that the sheep are protected. Not only do they, you know, protect them from bugs by, by you know, uh, uh, after they shear them, they, they cover them with the, you know, the medicine. They make sure that the sheep are well taken care of. Why? It's their livelihood, right? The, the, the wool is used for, for clothing. The milk is used for, for various things, not only for the, the lambs, but also for their own nourishment as well. They want to take care of the sheep. But unfortunately, what are the leaders of Israel and Judah doing? They're fleecing the flock. They're breaking their bones. It says in verse 3, they spread them out as for the pot and as a meat and a cauldron. Then they cry out to Yahweh, but he will not answer them. Why? Are they being good shepherds? Are they being good leaders? 
No. Instead, he will hide his face from them at that time because they have practiced evil deeds. By the way, what were they calling good? They were hating good and they were loving what? Evil. Practicing evil deeds. I'm grateful to come to a church where the leadership actually loves the Lord and loves the people. Where the, the pastors and the elders, they love the people. They serve the people. They think of the people first. They desire that the church grow. This says Yahweh, verse 5, concerning the prophets who lead their people or my people astray when they have something to bite and with their teeth. They call out peace, but against him who brings nothing in their mouths, they set themselves apart for war. What is their mind? War when they're saying peace. Therefore, it will be night for you without vision and darkness for you without divination. The sun will go down on the prophets and the day will go black over them. The seers will be ashamed. The diviners will be humiliated. Indeed, they will all cover their mouths because they have no answer from God. What's the worst punishment that God can give? Silence. Silence. In fact, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years of it. Not a single word written until John the Baptist comes on the scene. Make way straight the way of the Lord. Verse 8, on the other hand, I am filled with power. This is Micah talking. By, by the way, this is the first time he refers to himself in the first person where he, where he says the word I, okay? It's the first time in the whole book, okay? And he, he's purposely saying this now in contrast to the false prophets or, or the hired shepherds, okay? The ones that want to fleece the flock. The ones that want to scatter the flock. On the other hand, I am filled with power with the spirit of Yahweh and with justice and might declare to Jacob his transgression, even to Israel his sin. Now hear this. Heads of the house of Jacob, the rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight. And by the way, this isn't just happening today. This isn't just happening now in the news. This happened 2,700 years ago, okay, where people would try to twist the truth, okay? There is nothing new under the sun. Okay, nothing new under the sun. People have been trying to twist the truth for thousands of years. What is he saying? The leadership of the nation of Israel, they're abhorring justice. They're twisting what should be straight or the truth. Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her heads pronounce judgment for a bribe, and her priest instruct for a price, and her prophets divine for money. Do you hear those three phrases? In every single one of them, what is happening to the holy leaders? They're being bribed with something that's material. Thank God you're, you're coming on a Wednesday night, by the way. Every single one of these people, all those guys in the back, including behind this pulpit, all of us are volunteers. None of us get paid. None of us. 
Not a single cent. We, we just serve because we serve. We, we, I mean, you can't bribe us, okay? It wasn't, you know, Caleb to bribe John to come up here and, you know, you know, run up here and do this thing, you know. No, no. We're all volunteers. In fact, every single one, you know, and including you guys, all those people out there, they're volunteers. They, they serve because they love the Lord first. They, they put the, you know, the wants and needs of the flock first. We're, we're privileged, by the way. But what happens when you're only, you know, working at a church for money? What happens? What, what's, what can be very, very tricky? When, when, I, when I do it because I'm going to get a paycheck or when I'm doing it because of, you know, I, I want to, you know, impress the rich people, right? And thank God there's, you know, people with the gift of giving and, you know, and thank God for the people in our church that have the gift of giving. They, they desire to, you know, give their finances for the, the growth of this church. But, but what happens when I, when I want something for what I do in the name of God? Yeah, there, there's an ulterior motive behind it, right? Well, you know, I'm not going to do it anymore because you don't pay me. Or I'm not getting this amount of money. Or I want more, right? There, there's this power struggle that can happen, unfortunately happens in many churches, unfortunately. Because of a name or, you know, uh, an ego or, or, or some sort of, you know, um, you know, uh, a goal on the part of the pastor out of a bigger and better church or whatever. There's threat, and it affects the flock. It affects the people of God. The priests and the prophets, they were open to bribes and corruption. And by the way, that, that was true also for the time of Jesus, too. Remember what John the Baptist and Jesus, you know, that said to those Pharisees and those Sadducees, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs, right? You, all you want to do is, is stand on the street corners and, and yell out your magnificent prayers, right? In fact, they were making millions and millions and millions of dollars corrupting the people with their sacrifices, saying, oh, your sacrifice isn't good enough. You have to buy our sacrifice. You have to buy our lamb. Your, your, your lamb has a blemish. This lamb doesn't. And of course, they would, you know, horrifically overprice these sacrifices. What did Jesus do, by the way? You know what he did. Threw over the money changers table. You're, 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 you're turning my house, God's house, into a house of thievery rather than a house of prayer. I thank God for the volunteers that we have in this church. Verse 12, therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of ruin, and the mountain of the house of God will become a high places of a forest. What's the detriment when bribery overcomes the leadership in a spiritual nation? Devastation is happening. And God's going to bring it. Chapter 4. Micah chapter 4. Remember, what, what does Micah's name mean? Who is like the 
Lord. Okay, very, very important. Who is like the Lord? That's what Micah's name uh, means. Verse 1, now it will be in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and the people will stream to it and many nations will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us from his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and will render decisions for mighty and distant nations and they will hammer their swords into plowshares. Have you heard that verse before? I'm sure you have. In fact, not only does it originate from Micah, but it's also quoted in terms of the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign when Christ comes to the earth and there's, there's peace on the earth for a thousand years. They're going to turn their spears into pruning hooks Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. In fact, what are they doing with these implements of war, these swords and these spears? What are they turning them into? Agricultural equipment, right? Or, yeah, you know, the things that you use in order to, to plow the land or to make crops, right? Something that's now productive, right? Verse 4, and each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them tremble, for the mouth of Yahweh of hosts has spoken. This is my favorite verse in the whole, whole book of Micah. Micah chapter 4, verse 5. One of the first verses I ever memorized, all the people walk into each in the name of his God, as for us, we will serve the Lord our God forever and ever. In the LSB or in the the, the Legacy Standard Bible, it, it changes that Lord into Yahweh using the, the name of God. Though all the peoples walk each in the name of his God, as for us, we will walk in the name of Yahweh our God forever and ever. And if you impart that to your heart, if you memorize that verse, it means something personal, means something intimate. When all the peer pressure is against you, where do you walk? When everybody else is going their own way in the names of their gods, their, their created things, where do you walk? In the name of the transcendent God, Yahweh, I am who I am, the only uncreated one. The only one who is God. The only one who is God himself unique in his personhood always has been always will be is now forever and ever and ever defined in his name by the way yahweh i am that i am something amazing happens remember in verse one we learned the kings right there was jotham ahaz ahaz was a horrific king but then there was a third king there his name was hezekiah what did ahaz do with the doors of the temple Close them. Look at what Hezekiah does. Second Chronicles chapter 29, verses 1 through 5. We'll, we'll end with this. Hezekiah became king. The very next chapter, okay? Second Chronicles 28 is all about Ahaz. Second Chronicles chapter 29 to 33 are all about Hezekiah, okay? Hezekiah comes on the throne. 
What has his dad done? Close the doors. Cause the people to sin. Uh, cause, cause covetousness and jealousy throughout the nation. People are fighting amongst themselves, stealing other people's property, fleecing the flock. What does Hezekiah do when he gets on the throne? Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. I love this. And he did what was right in the sight of Yahweh, according to all that David, his father, had done. By the way, the opposite of his dad, Ahaz. Verse 3. Listen to this. The very first thing he does when he comes onto the throne. The very first thing he does when he becomes king at the age of 25. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, what does he do? Opens the doors of the temple. Why? Just read the Bible in context. Read the Bible straight through. It's amazing. By the way, if you, you read later also, it talks about Isaiah and Micah being the instruments of the ones that convicted the heart of Micah, or excuse me, Hezekiah, to open the doors. And, and by the way, there's a revival that takes place, and God, God relents, and God no longer sends the Assyrian people. In fact, the Assyrian people are turned back from the gates of Jerusalem because the people repent. There's a revival that happens in the land. In fact, that's exactly what it says there in verses 3 through 5. He opened the doors of the house of Yahweh and repaired them. Remember what his dad had done, Ahaz? He had cut up all those utensils and set them up as tribute. He, he literally, you know, shaved off the gold from the, the doors of the temple itself as, as payment to the Assyrians. Don't attack us. Don't attack us. We'll give you money. Verses 4 and 5, and he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the square of the east. This is in Second Chronicles chapter 29. You can read the rest of it in your, when you get home or, or later on this week. And he said to them, listen to me, O Levites, set yourself apart now as holy. No more bribe. No, no more corruption. No, no more, you know, taking sides. No more lies. None of the, the previous acts that you did under my father's reign. You're called to be holy or set apart. But by the way, that's the one attribute that God always calls us to be. Be ye what? Holy as I am holy. He never calls you to be omnipotent. Never. Thank God, by the way. He never calls you to be omniscient, which means all-knowing. All he never calls you to be that. You don't have to know everything. He never calls you to be omnipresent. He, he never calls you to be transcendent. He, he never calls you to be all those, those attributes of God in terms of who he is. Except for one. The one thing that we're supposed to be growing in We'll never attain fully, but we're called to grow in holiness. Be ye holy as I am holy. We'll talk about that more next week. 
Hezekiah calls the Levites the servants of the temple to set themselves apart now as holy, set apart as holy the house of Yahweh, the God of your fathers, and bring out the impurity from the holy place, and a revival takes place. And in fact, Hezekiah invites the northern tribes to come down. Those tribes that have been separate for a hundred years or more, he calls them and says, he invites them and says, come celebrate with us. An invitation to those nations. And many do, by the way, many do. And you can read that in 29 to 33 of Second Chronicles. So next week, we're going to pick up the, the story. There's only seven chapters in the book of Micah. Very, very, very short book. You can read one chapter a day and get through it in a week. Uh, pay attention, especially in chapters five and chapter seven, when you get to those chapters, because they, they'll blow you away. Absolutely amazing. Who is like the Lord? Look for those phrases. You're going to see them multiple times, okay? Who is like the Lord? Thank God, right? Who do we serve? Come. The one who is high and lifted up. Dear Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who is unlike any other. You're the only one that, it, that is not created. Everything else that we you know, call idols or, or put before you or, or created things, including ourselves. Lord, we can never attain you. You knew that, and so you came to the earth for us. You, you, you left your transcendency, your, your throne, heaven itself, to come to earth. As a babe in a manger, God the Father sent God the Son to the earth for us, to be the good shepherd, to lay his life down for the sheep. The only way that God could die, the only way that Jesus, being God the Son here on the earth, Emmanuel, could lay down his life for us so that we could have a place with you, so that we could go to heaven, so that we could be with you. And so, Lord, I ask that you maybe help us as we, you know, or maybe struggling with these things our, ourselves trying to, to wrap our finite minds around a, an infinite God. We thank you so much for uh, coming to earth, the, the infinite coming to earth for, for 33 years, a finite number of times, so that we could have a Savior who would die for us. So, Lord, as we, we go our separate ways tonight, Lord, I ask that you help us as we we see the Word of God as a mirror before our very souls and, and see these things that we've read that, you know, may seem archaic to us, but, but in actuality, they happen even today. The killing of uh, children, the, the covetousness and the, the stripping away of other people's things, the desire for a bribe or, or covetousness or injustice or or loving evil and hating good. It is rampant in our society today. 
Lord, I thank you so much for revealing these things, our, our own transgressions, our own sins. Lord, help us to be humble and admit it to you. Help us to see your word as this mirror, Lord. And thank you so much for being our good shepherd. Being the one that we can come to at any time and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you hear us, that you're, you're listening to us, Lord. Lord, I thank you so much for these, my friends and my family, those that are here, those that are watching online, those that will be watching in the future. Lord, I ask that you just help us to not only see the privilege of, of you and in, in your word coming to life, but also the privilege of seeing you work today, that you are working in the church, that you are working in our church, that, that you are who you are and your very being in our midst, Lord the intimacy of a holy and righteous God. So Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends and my family tonight. Use this for your glory. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.